Welcome, everybody, to the Mind Your Money podcast, a show by public.com that examines the relationship between investing, human behavior, and happiness. I'm Doug Bonaparte, president of Bonafide Wealth. And I'm Morgan Housel. I'm a partner at the Collaborative Fund and author of The Psychology of Money. Today, we're going to be talking about whether AI innovation is happening too fast, why roughly half of all public companies eventually disappear, and the concept of mental liquidity. Later on, we're going to be speaking with Stanford business professor Jeffrey Pfeffer about tech layoffs and what they mean for your career. Hey, Morgan. We're, we're, we're back here. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but um, people are talking about AI. Um, the, robot, the robots are coming, right? Um, when, when Terminator. But um, I guess the biggest piece of news here is we've, we've been watching specifically chat gpt which is now in its fourth rendition i think this is the, the big one that people are tinkering with um and it's you know what about it it's kind of been exploding in growth and its capabilities and what it can do uh and it looks like it's getting scary enough for some big wigs here to say yo we we need to pump the brakes on ai we gotta we gotta slow our ai roll um i'd love to know are, are we going too fast here is skynet inbound I mean, what one thing that sticks out to me here is just, of course, like the speed in which this has happened. Like the public release of ChatGPT three was, I think, like December, like ninety yeah. days ago. And I guess in in the history of technology, like most new products take five to ten years to really like penetrate people's psyches. This has been literally a couple of days, like without exaggeration. I'm trying to think of another product that had that kind of a rollout. Even the iPhone in 2007 took like a year or two before it was like ubiquitous. There was the first year of the iPhone rollout. It was like just for like cool rich people to have. This has happened so quickly, so fast, caught so many people's attention that there, there is a side of me that's like, maybe it is going too fast and we don't know. But that's, that's just a small part of me. I think the bigger part of me is like, look. Are we just doing this based off of emotions? Is the call to slow the roll just based off emotions? Or is there evidence that what is being created has the potential to damage, to damage society? The answer might be yes. And that's just like not publicly known what those damages would be. There's also a point here where it's like, can you think of any product in history that was dangerous? There are lots of them that government regulations said, hey, can you guys just like not make that? And then we're all good. And then people stopped making it and like no one made it. I mean, as if, if we have the potential, if anybody has the potential to create a harmful AI product, it will be built. If it's not by us, then by some other country or some other terrorist organization, whoever it might be, it will get built. And I mean, yeah. I guess I guess like nuclear weapons is the extreme example here. As long as the potential for them to exist is out there, somebody is going to have one. And if someone has it, it's since then like other people want it. And so it's like if that cat is out of the bag, I don't think there's any historical precedent for putting it back in. Yeah, and and that's the thing here. We it, it's there's no precedent. I mean, the only thing we have are as I joke as I joked about earlier, are movies or or science fiction novels of what what may happen as as you know, um, you know, technology becomes sentient or close to it. And uh that I think is why a lot of people are are afraid because of the movies and the novels that you've seen and it lets your mind wander like, yeah, they're going to take us over. Didn't you see an Arnold Schwarzenegger melt in lava? Like we we can't have that happen here. I keep going back to Terminator. But you have big names like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, I guess, leading the push of, hey, we got to chill out here on, on the AI rollout. Um, yeah, I guess there are, are, you know, our tech overlord leaders to some degree here. And, and we have to listen to them. I guess they have a lot of clout in this space. 
But, um, you know, they're also titans of industry. And I wonder just how much of, you know, they're pleading to slow things down is to get their arms around it or yeah, to, to, you know, catch look up. at what the competition's going to be. Like, hey, we're going to lose money, so pump the brakes. Not, hey, we're, we're going to lose our lives, pump the brakes. Yeah, I mean, just to catch up. And this gets back to how quickly it happened. I mean, literally 90 days ago, Google was the completely, like, unencumbered, dominant yeah. force in search, and it still is. But you can so easily make an argument today. It's just an argument. It's not fact yet that Microsoft could create a search engine that could make Google look like a joke. Naval yeah. tweeted the other day, this is speculation too, but it makes sense. He was like, what if Microsoft comes out with a smartphone based around chat GPT that makes the iPhone look like a toy? Total speculation. But you could like the idea that maybe some corporate titans are saying, we should pause because I need to wrap my head around the new competition that did not exist 90 days ago. Like the cynical part of me kind of thinks that there might be some of that going on too. Sure. And that's why, that's why I brought it up. I'm going to try and bridge this over to uh, the metaverse or the lack thereof uh, of being a metaverse uh, real quick, but just to kind of close the loop, if you will, on, on the chat GPT story here, I, I do take a cynical take on it as well. You know, it's never, you know, just what's being put out there, unfortunately, in the, in the world that we're living with. But, um, you know, just to kind of uh, pay our respects to uh, Mr. Moore of Moore's Law, who passed away just a week or so ago. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting considering, you know, here's a man who discovered how uh, the exponential growth of processing power would work. And now we're looking at AI in the context of chat GPT three to four and later versions. And I, I just can't help but to create that mental picture of, of what that hockey stick looks like yeah. in terms of like, I want someone to show me the graph of an arrow basically going straight up. And uh, yeah, that, that's the image that I can't get out of my mind, aside from robots, you know, taking over. The, the optimist in me too thinks that like this is growing so quickly and has a potential to be so powerful. And there are so many risks of that, of like the extreme, like people talk about like, oh, it's going to wipe out humanity, like the extreme end. The optimist in me is like that kind of like uncertain future with how powerful this is, that could go in the other direction too. And it's like, this is growing so quickly and it's so powerful. Could this transform the economy in ways, in good ways that are completely unfathomable? Like what is, what is the equivalent of, of AI wiping out humanity in the good way of like, like what's, what, what's the polar opposite of that? Like AI just completely revolutionizes like GDP growth around the world. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. 10 years from now, we are more productive than we could have ever possibly fathomed. Like that's in the cards too. And I think the, the percentage odds of that being in the cards are probably equal to the 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 doomsday scenario. Now, in that scenario, if if it's five percent odds of wiping out humanity and five percent odds of juicing GDP, like it's clearly which one of those we should pay more attention to, of course. Yeah. But I think whenever there is something new and uncertain, your mind instantly turns to what could go wrong, which is right. That's like that's how we should manage risk. But there's also like what could go right here that is beyond our imagination. Yeah, yeah, I'll never uh I'll never have to write uh, a blog post again, I think is is what it's coming down to. Yeah, there there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing things that can come out of here and and you just start plugging these uh, GPT bots into things uh, or any system. Imagine if you're Amazon and you, know, you you somehow create, you know, AMZN bot and you're already one of the most efficient supply, you know, suppliers of the world of of goods and all of a sudden uh, you know, you've increased efficiency 25%. Anyone, any system doesn't need to be, you know, necessarily Amazon. You do that on a global scale. 
uh, the time we get back. So uh, Morgan, what I took away from here is there's a 50-50 shot that we live in utopia or it's complete annihilation. Thank you for that. Um, and right, <laughs> that's I'll, that's kind of where I'll, we're at I'll right now. Feels right. All right, I'm taking those odds too. Let's, let's coin flip humanity. I love it. All right, just to, just to see if we can't get this into something related uh, to the metaverse here because now we're linking AI to the metaverse. That's not what we're doing. It was just a year ago where all you could talk about was a brand getting involved with the metaverse and of course meta very meta of their name to be investing billions and billions of dollars now it looks like it's dead no one's talking about it disney closed a division that was building its metaverse strategy uh microsoft recently shuttered its uh virtual reality platform recently no that was back in like 2017 so they were way ahead of you know canning investment into virtual reality and meta uh meta verse type stuff um do you think it's dead? Do you think it's going to come back? Do you think uh, it was just an overinvestment into something that's just not ready? Or did AI steal the show? I, I, I don't really have any any dog in this fight, but I'll, 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 I, I will say my personal experience. I got my son an Oculus for Christmas last yeah. year. And the first time I used it, I was like, this is, this is going to change the world. This is amazing. By the second week, I was like, I'm kind of over it. And I don't think we've yeah. touched it in 11 months. And I think a lot of people's experiences like that is similar. And contrast that with the first time in the 1990s that you used AOL Instant Messenger. It was not, it was not a flash in the pan. You, you instantly knew, like, this is going to change my life. And you used it for another 10 years or 15 years how, when, until it died or whatever. Same with the iPhone. Like, the first time you use the iPhone, you're like, this is obviously superior. And I am never going back to my flip phone ever, ever, ever again. And I think whenever you take something like Oculus or the metaverse or whatnot, I think at best for most people, there has been an initial flash in the pan where you're like, oh, this is really cool. And then after yeah. the second or third time, usually you're like, ah, this is like, it's, this is actually not ready for prime time. Or even when prime time comes around, like, I'm still not convinced that this is superior to what else exists out there. Those could easily be famous last words, you know, five or 10 years from now when they do figure it out. But most of the time that there is a new technology that is ready for prime time, you don't have to shove it down people's throats. You don't have to rename your company and, and convince people, this is the future. I'm telling you, this is the future. When it's ready for prime time, it's obvious to, cons to consumers that this is the future and they will use it on their own without having being like force fed to them. Doug, there's this study I saw several years ago. It's from JP Morgan Asset Management and it looked at the Russell 3000 index, a large index of 3000 companies. And it was over a long period. It was like 1980 to 2015 or something like a long period of time. And it showed that 40% of the companies in the Russell 3000 disappeared. Not because they merged or not, they died over this 40 year period. And those are companies that are successful enough to become like large cap companies. Almost half of them disappear. And to me, that was just like, hey, well, there's two really good takeaways from this. One is that during that period, the Russell 3000 had really good overall returns. Even though half the companies disappeared, the returns from the survivors, particularly like the top 10%, were so good that it made up for all the losers. But it's also just like such a stark example of how brutal capitalism is and how even in like the best case scenario, when like your company is so successful that it goes public, you're probably going to die over the next generation. That's just the brutal, blunt force reality of how competitive every business is. And then, so then the question is like, is it actually more competitive and harder to stay alive now than it is in the past? I think the evidence of that is actually like pretty slim that like capitalism was brutal 40 years ago and it's brutal today. It'll be brutal in the future. I don't know if it's that much harder today. I think what is true though, is that whenever you have some sort of capital bubble, 
where there's an overfunding of companies, the washout that happens after that can just be absolutely horrific. And it seems like not controversial whatsoever that we are now today in the early phases of a washout that happened from 10 or 15 years of easy money. So would that like washout rate, like the death rate of companies, not even public companies, but startups all on down the list be substantially higher five or 10 years from now than it is historically? Like makes sense to me. I also think that companies can do a lot more uh, and more quickly, right? So the cycle is is a lot faster. Um, think about how much more time it took to structure deals or raise capital uh, or market using you know technology of 30, 40 years ago or even 10 years ago for that matter. So um, I, I think it maybe is a little bit more fierce to survive. The thing that pops into my mind, and this isn't just you know, um, your mega caps and your massive companies and or, or mid-sized companies, if you're looking at the Russell, you know, this, this happens down at the family business level, right? And I, I could come back to the stat that's 70% of second generation wealth, like fails or businesses fail. And third generation, it's 90%, meaning there's no, there's no chance a business makes it three generations. And that's, again, looking at, at more of the smaller business level. It's funny or interesting how that applies there. As much as it applies at the very top, we were given uh, top 10 companies by market cap Jan 1, 2020. And I was trying to see who, who still remained in the top 10. And it looks like, you know, Microsoft, apropos of talking about AI and everything in, in 2000, it was number one. And here uh, we find ourselves with Microsoft at number two. I didn't see any other one if I'm reading this right. And just to give you an idea back in 2000, because people are now going to say, hey, I want to know what else is in there. Number two, GE. Number three, NTT, then Cisco, Walmart, Intel, uh, Nippon, uh, Nokia, of course, Pfizer. Um, and then we got today, Apple, Microsoft, um, Saudi, America, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, Berkshire, so on and so forth. And I would completely bet- Completely different mix, completely totally different, different mix outside and of I Microsoft. Would, I would bet good money that in 20 years, when you're going through the list, you're going to be like, in 2020, it was, you're going to, you're going to name the big company study, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook. And in 20 years, you're going to be like, oh, that company that used to be something great. I have no idea which one of those will be it. Yeah. But I don't think there's ever been a period when over 20 years, the dominant companies like lasted. You know, Microsoft really is a standout here of yeah. being dominant in like 1990 and 2000 and 2020. Like that is extremely rare. Like, like so, some others, I guess like Standard Oil, which became Exxon and Chevron and all those is one of like, it's been dominant for 100 years. And it's number you one, could, you yeah, could right. argue Exxon was number one forever. Yeah. But you could argue that that's like pretty much the only company that has survived a hundred years of dominance. Cause even general electric, of course, which was the standout, like it lasted a hundred years. And then over the last 10 or 15 years, just vomited it all up. And so like that tends to be, I think it's true. Like there's this great onion headline. I'm going to paraphrase it. I forget exactly what it was, but it was like company meets its mission and then shuts down. And like, it's a joke because no company is like, our mission is to do X. And once they do X, they're like, okay, we're done. We'll close our doors. Every company wants to survive indefinitely. Every company wants to yeah. go on forever. But the truth is the vast majority of businesses, not all of them, but the majority of businesses were pretty much built and meant for one period of time, one market cycle, one technology cycle, even one like CEO tenure. That's what they were built for. And when that thing ends, the company's existence kind of goes away. And so that's like, that's the truth of it. Every company wants to live forever but there's a shelf life over its potential to innovate and its product cycle. Like there's a shelf life to all of that. 
And that is really hard to accept, particularly if you are involved in one of those companies, if you work for those companies, if you're invested in those companies. But there's this great quote, I forget who said it, but it's like evolution teaches by destroying. It doesn't teach by like showing you what works. It teaches you by destroying what does not work. That's how evolution works for all organisms, including companies. And so that like death rate is just a normal part that we have to put up with in investing. Frankly, this is why like a major reason, not the only reason that I index, like it's if you, if you own a portfolio, if you own a hundred stocks, half of them won't exist in 20 years. And like, that's if you did like a pretty good job. And so that yeah, just br- it, like the brutal math of that pushes you towards diversification. And, and it's crushing, right? When you have conviction uh, to concentrate a position, I, I want to run with that. Like, Hey, uh, you know, which is why I index same here, but this is where, you know, the absolute crushingness, if that's a word of having conviction behind, look at those top 10. Like my question was, can you imagine, you know, to your point, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, not seeing Google alphabet, not seeing them in that top 10, right? And you would even say Microsoft should still be there if they could get from 20, 2000 to 2023. And, and just like, the, the reality of that, like Google's not there. And then you're an investor who is completely convinced that Google will double, triple its market cap over the next 10 years. They're, they're literally banking on it and it doesn't happen. Um, worst case, like they're, they're done. Microsoft beat them, right? Like, and you say that could never happen, but like, it happens Wrong. all the time. And this is all actually a, time. This is actually a perfect segue into our next topic, which is the idea of mental liquidity, which is a phrase a coworker of mine came up with that I absolutely loved having like the idea of mental liquidity, the ability to change your mind with ease. And one point that like really is a perfect segue here is that my belief that so much of what most people call conviction is actually just a willful blindness to exor- to ignore facts that might change your mind and to come to by terms every, with the fact that the world day, is changing. Morgan. But That's so many investors, day. how many investors are like, I have so much conviction in this idea. Like, why? Do, do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that like you are admitting your stubbornness that you are not going to change your mind? I think you can feel good. You can say like, oh, the, the percentage odds are in my favor in this. Like the expected value is in my favor. But so, so often when people say high conviction, they just, they're admitting their own stubbornness. And I think that's why so many investors get into problems. And it makes sense. You're like, I have conviction that Google is going to dominate the next decade. Maybe they will. This, I'm, this, I'm just picking them out. But that, like, you're just admitting that you are not going to change your mind no matter what happens in that situation. And so many investors fall into this trap. So I read your piece, Mental Liquidity. Nice. We're, we're, let's let's acknowledge, first of all, your writing's always great. And this was a wonderful piece because uh, you asked the reader, I believe, um, you know, something in the last 10 years, right? You wanted them yeah. to go back 10 years and think about something. And I've been thinking about this all day. And I'm just going to turn the tables on you. Something that they believe 10 years ago or in the last 10 years um, that they had changed uh, their mind about. I'll even do it like this. What haven't you changed your mind about maybe that that you should have? Any version of that. I'm going to flip it to you because to be quite honest, I really wanted a good answer by the time we were doing this. And yeah. I think I have one, but I'm throwing it to you. What what was it? Because you wrote it and you yeah. know it. Well, what, what, what I've changed my mind about in the last 10 years is this idea that 
there are a million ways to manage your money and invest successfully for your personality. There is not one right way to invest your money. And people who are equally intelligent, equally informed, equally educated can come to totally different conclusions about how much money you should save, how you should invest, like what stocks you should buy. There is not one right answer. And the huge majority of the time that you have a financial debate people arguing with each other about like, is this stock a good buy? Should I do? Yeah. They're not actually debating. They're talking over each other because they have different time horizons and different uh, risk tolerances and different social aspirations and whatnot. And so I've just become much more accepting of if you invest your money differently than I do, I'm not, I'm not going to debate you because odds are there's a huge chance that you and I just have a different personality. And that's, that's the difference between us. It's not an intellectual debate over what stocks you should buy. It's just a reflection of different personalities. And people understand that for their taste in food, for their taste in music, for whatnot. They understand that if you, if you like different food and music than I do, one of us is not right or wrong. It's just taste. And I think there is such an element of taste in how we manage our finances that is hard to accept because finance looks like an analytical field where the spreadsheet should be able to tell you the quote unquote right answer. And that I've changed my mind a lot about that. Like most financial decisions are not made on a spreadsheet. They're made at the dinner table and everyone is a different conversation at the dinner table. So they come to totally different conclusions about what they should do. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I love that answer. Um, you know, every, every episode now you, you steal something from me and, and you more or less stole uh, something close of what I was going to say, but as someone who, you know, is a financial advisor and works with individuals and uh, in, in all different kinds of ways uh, to grow their wealth. You're, you're spot on here. It, it's taken me a, a long time in my career to appreciate uh, the person that wants to uh, build their wealth using just real estate, right? Just real estate. And early on, you're like, oh, that means they're never going to manage any money with me or there's no opportunity for business. Not only is that wrong, but two, it flies in the face of the fact that that is a very legitimate way to go about wealth accumulation and reaching financial goals in the same way. And by the way, the folks who are really good at that are really good at that. And by the way, they've developed skills that not a lot of other people really you know, have or, or have the desire to get in order to invest that way. Um, sure, the majority of people probably are like us. They want to be passive and they don't want to have to deal with, you know, I, by the way, with the real estate, the biggest joke is, oh, you should have passive income sources, go invest in real estate. And meanwhile, if you're actually going to invest in real estate, the amount of active management that takes place to get to the point of actually getting any kind of passive income is, is a tremendous amount of work. So the irony on that. But listen, I have an appreciation for that just as much as I do the person who chooses the dollar cost average into the S&P 500 every month. I would argue that both have their challenges associated with it. And I don't believe for a second, it's easy to be consistent, regularly investing in boring stuff either, um, which is why they outsource it half the time to a professional. Um, so I, I love that answer. For me, it would have to be that... Um, I'll try and phrase it. I, I wrote about this a little bit in terms of how I thought, you know, it had to be about hustle culture in terms of how I was using my time. And that maybe this was a reflection of, of you know, needing to succeed early on in building a business that taking time on the weekends uh, and enjoying that free time. It was never, it was not, I thought it was not an option. I thought it was not something that successful people did, certainly at the early stages of their business, um, was to take any kind of time for themselves or vacation uh, or, or even enjoy the weekend, right? And, and you know, obviously when you say it, it sounds pretty destructive and awful, especially if you're, you're a parent and you have young kids and you're part of their lives. But yeah, I would tell you a decade ago, 
Um, there's no way I was going to, you know, take advantage of, you know, time off. And this is, yeah, I, I bet down hard on, on kind of that hustle culture stuff. God, is that just so wrong? Um, and, and really, you know, the way I cherish free time and the opportunity to go on spring break with the kids. And a lot of it's, you know, fueled by wanting to create those memories with your loved ones. But just from a mental health standpoint, um, I, I was very wrong. I think there's greater growth that comes out of striking a balance. I think striking a balance is, is objectively harder than being extreme one way or the other. But in that challenge comes greater rewards, right? Because nothing worth doing is easy. So that that's what I got completely wrong and was convinced I would never change. And I, I figure out how to work family and personal time into the grind set mentality, cringy word. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's not that it's not that at all. The greater challenge is figuring out how to balance all of those things. Great piece, Morgan. I love mental liquidity. I'll, I'll be, I'll be using that in cocktail conversations from Thank here you. on out. I like it. Yeah, you got it. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pfeffer. I'm curious, you have this interesting point about corporate layoffs that some companies are not necessarily doing it for cost cutting, but it's more of a copycat behavior against their peers. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, you know, for many years, we know uh, that people conform to what other people do. We know that social influence is a very important uh, way of explaining behavior. Um, you know, we follow each other. Uh, it economizes on our thought. And companies are no different than anybody else. Uh, so companies imitate just as individuals imitate. And so people start doing layoffs. And if you're not doing a layoff, your board is going to look at you and say, everybody else is doing layoffs. Why aren't we? Does that go in the other direction too? Did it happen in 2020 with hiring of Google's hiring? So Facebook has to hire and if Facebook's hiring, Snap has to hire and it goes on down the line. Absolutely. And you see this, by the way, I mean, you know, go to an airport lounge. People are waiting for the plane to be called. One person stands up. Everybody else stands up. If everybody sits down, everybody will sit down. So humans basically imitate behavior, by the way, all, all organisms do. So, you know, of course. So, so we, we copied each other on the way up. We copied each other on the way down. I, I ran an experiment uh, the other week where I was wondering if I took out my recycling cans, if my neighbors would follow suit, knowing very well it was not the recycling day. And uh, sure enough, three other neighbors had actually brought down their recycling uh, to copy me doing that. And none of, none of us got our recycling picked up that next morning. So very true. Very true. And I only did that because I think it was a retaliation for another neighbor who tried the same thing. So you know, Doug won, neighbor also won right now. There, I know yeah. there's one other, there's a study that I saw many years ago where somebody uh, would stand on a sidewalk in, in Manhattan and just point up to something in the sky that wasn't there. There was nothing, but they would stand there and point. And it took a matter of seconds before a crowd was standing around trying to see what they were pointing at. So this like this desire to just do what other people are doing with the assumption that other people might know something that you don't seems so ingrained in human behavior. That's, that is exactly right. And I think your, the last two examples are perfect. And, uh, and, and that is exactly, I mean, that's right. And we would not expect, you know, if this is fundamental human behavior, as you both have said, why would we expect companies to be any different? You know, you go to work, now you're the, now you're the head of HR, you're the CFO of one of these tech companies. You're going to do what everybody else is doing because they're all doing it. And, and okay. of course, it's, it's interesting to talk about these topics and kind of say, wow, like that's fascinating that they all mimic each other. 
But at the end of the day, of course, these are human beings with mortgages and spouses and children. Talk a little bit about just like the damage this does to people's career paths and their own psyche when they are just kind of ping ponged around across these companies. Well, you know, for maybe 40, 50, 60 years, and the studies have been done all over the world, we find um, the, the evidence is quite convincing that layoffs not only harm people's mental health and their stress level and their depression, but they literally kill people. Uh, the suicide rate uh, doubles uh, for people who lose their jobs um, because of plant closings or layoffs. Uh, heart attacks go up somewhere between 25 and 40 percent. So this has a psychological and a physiological consequence for the people laid off. What advice do you have for people who are either looking to bounce back from layoffs or for people looking to accelerate their career? Well, to bounce back from layoffs, I think, you know, I we believe in many people believe in something called the just world phenomenon, which means that people think they get what they deserve. So if you're laid off, the first response is going to be, what did I do to deserve this? That is not a helpful response. It's not, by the way, a very accurate response. Maybe the, you had nothing to do with the fact that you were laid off. Maybe this was somebody who you didn't get along with or some company just laying people off by the thousands. So I think the first step to getting over layoffs is to understand that to, in large measure, except for picking the wrong employer, uh, you did not, uh, you know, this is not your fault. And so therefore you need to go on. I think you ought to learn something from the layoff. And that is as people pick jobs, you ought to try to find companies for whom the statement people are most important asset is more than just, you know, just, just some uh, symbolic thing, but they actually take it seriously. There are companies that don't do layoffs. Patagonia has not done a layoff. Barry Waymiller, the conglomerate has not, uh, manufacturing conglomerate has not done a layoff. For, men, for most of its lifetime, Southwest Airlines never did a layoff or a furlough in an industry where that's all that happened. And even after 9-11, when no airlines were flying, Southwest laid off nobody. So there are, it is possible, harder than it used to be, to find companies that not did, 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 do not do layoffs. And maybe you should consider whether or not the company really cares about its humans and their well-being, both psychological and physiological, before you take a job. So, you know, I think that's that's another word of advice. Um, now, with respect to accelerating the career, of course, that takes us to a different topic, which is the topic of power. Let's let's let, let's jump right into that. Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah. Tell, so tell, tell us more about power. Well, you know, I wrote a book. I teach a class on power, which is the most popular elective at Stanford. I had 120 people on the waiting list. Uh, I teach an online version of the class, which has more than 400 people in it. And I wrote a book recently called Seven Rules of Power. And I can tell you the seven rules. The first rule is get out of your own way. Uh, don't worry about being liked. Um, don't use self-deprecating comments. Don't think you're uh, get over the imposter syndrome, which says, you know, I don't belong where I am. You, of course, belong where you are. Um, that's rule one. Rule two is break the rules. Um, all kinds of successful people and all kinds of successful companies break the rules. Um, rule three is show up in a powerful fashion. Um, you know, the, uh, Amy Cuddy has this famous TED talk about power posing. You ought to power pose. Who knows if it has an effect on your cortisol levels, but it has an effect on people, how people perceive you. Uh, competence 
and confidence are often conflated. When If you show up with confidence, people will believe you're competent, even if you're not. Um, rule four is to act and speak with power. Rule five is to network relentlessly. Rule six is to use your power. You know, when you get into we get into a position, make sure you have the right people around you um, and and gather resources and get stuff done. Nobody is going to, you know, praise you for saying, well, you know, Doug took over this job and he didn't do anything. So you need to do things. You need to use your power. And rule seven, which I think is along with rule one, the most important of all, is that once you have power, wealth and success, how you got there is not going to matter. You'll be forgiven, forgotten or both. As it relates to that, do most of these layouts that are taking place in tech in the last year or so, like let's focus on that, are most of them the layoffs where the individual employees' power and their their job performance would have saved them? Or is it the kind of layoff where it's just like, we're cutting this department and it doesn't matter how good you are or how much power you influenced, you're gone anyways. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I think it's the second. I think it's very much the second. I mean, you know, there, if you're laying off 10 or 15 or 20,000 people, there's going to be some layoffs depending upon your performance level. But a lot of this is we're just cutting, you know, we're going to cut marketing. We're going to cut, you know, we're going to cut recruiting. Uh, we're going to cut, you know, whatever department we're going to cut. And if you're in that department, you're gone. So I want to actually go back to that number one uh, on the seven there. It's something that I, I'm comfortable in my skin to admit that I struggle with imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people do. Um, and and I love it. You said just get just get over it. Well, tell my therapist that they're clearly making a good, you know, good buck, um, you know, helping me with that right there. I'd love to hear from you. What you know, as someone who's obviously very much in tune to this. Uh, what do you think is the number one recommendation for people just to get over it? I wish I could flip that switch. Where's the switch? Well, I'm not sure I know where the exact switch is, but I think one of the problems that people have is they think that everybody is paying attention to them, that they're watching them, that people are evaluating Doug. Does Doug really belong in this job? Does Doug really this good? Is Morgan really this good? What people forget is that most people, most of the time, are not looking at you and not thinking about you and not watching you. They are thinking about their favorite topic, which is, of course, themselves. So I think one of the ways of getting over imposter syndrome is to understand that you are not being evaluated all the time. You're not being watched all the time. You're not being assessed all the time. People aren't that interested in you. No one is thinking about you as much as you are. That is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. And I think what's, what's interesting about imposter syndrome is I think those who suffer from it tend to think that they are like alone in that suffering. But the truth is that it, particularly for people who are at a higher level of their careers, everybody, virtually everyone except for the psychopaths are suffering from it. Yep. And, that, and it's interesting that you would say that. You know, many of the leadership studies have found that um, there's a study actually in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which shows that many leaders are in fact psychopathic. Right, uh, right. And narciss narcissistic. We had a president who was one, uh, you know, um, a Machiavellian. Absolutely. What is sometimes called the dark triad is actually very useful for ascending the corporate ladder. It, it, it actually makes a lot of sense that those are the people who would reach the highest levels. Like you need to wake up every morning and think I belong 
to be the president, to be the CEO, to be the chairman, whoever it might be. That's who actually gets there. And the people who wake up doubting themselves, of course, like by definition, like weed themselves out of the process. So I guess in some ways it shouldn't surprise us that that's the case. That's exactly right. Well, Jeffrey, you did a phenomenal job of creating an amazing bridge between our first episode and our second episode here today. Um, was not intentional, but you just hit it out of the park. I want to thank you for taking uh, your time here today. Thanks to Jeffrey Pfeffer, Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford Business School. This has been an absolute treat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. That'll do it for today's episode of Mind Your Money. If you enjoyed listening to it, be sure to hit that subscribe button and keep up with the latest shows. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.